Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's roundup. I have to record these a little bit earlier than normal, so I might miss a post that comes in under the wire, but if so, no big deal. I'll just get to it first thing next week. But anyway, let's jump in and see what's been going on. First up, Todd from RetroFrog has just released two fully shielded composite video cables for the Genesis 2 or any compatible mini DIN, and also for the PC Engine TurboGrafx-16. The cables are about 20 bucks each plus shipping, and they're currently available right now through Stone Age Gamer. And there's a few things to note about this. First of all, these aren't going to miraculously make composite video look like S-Video or anything like that. Composite video is noisy by itself, sometimes on a CRT that will result in a beautiful image, but it's my strong opinion that the two reasons you would want to upgrade to these or buy them if you don't have any composite video cables for those consoles are consistency and audio. So the audio is kind of easy. Anybody who's bought those cheap $2 AliExpress cables has probably had a loud ground hum or audio buzz, especially in brighter screens. And if you're the type of person that wants to just experience these games the, the way that many of the developers probably design them to be experienced on, composite video on a CRT, but you appreciate the audio and the soundtracks and you want to put that through a stereo, this is going to be probably a big upgrade from those cheap ones. I do think that most of us don't talk about audio as much because really before MD Fourier, it was all subjective. But now with test methods and different things that are out there, we can really prove that there are better ways to listen to audio, especially from these classic consoles. And if you want to take advantage of that, you're going to need good shielded cables. But the other thing is consistency. Anybody else that's also bought those cheap $2 AliExpress cables knows that some don't fit right. Some have a, a death grip, some are too loose and you drop signal. Some have the left and right audio swapped. The, their cables are marked wrong. So you have to, most of us probably wouldn't even notice till a couple minutes in the gaming session and be like, wait a minute, what's wrong? What's going on? Have to swap them back. So, and also, you know, you're supporting somebody in the retro gaming community who's making products for us. And these aren't price gouged. These are very reasonably priced. So I, I really think that if you're looking for good composite cables for either of those consoles, or really any console that accepts the Genesis 2 mini DIN, so any of those adapters like uh, for the, the PC engine that plug into the back that use the Genesis 2 DIN, anything that gets composite video out of that would really benefit from these. So 
you know, while I wouldn't say these are going to be a massive upgrade for most people, especially if you have the original cables or something, I do think it's something you should all keep in mind if you want to explore composite video or if that's all you need. You know, very often I get caught up in talking about the newest and best solutions, but I always try to remind everybody composite video on a CRT is amazing, period, end of story. Anything else you might appreciate, you might not, doesn't really matter. It still doesn't take away from how awesome composite on a CRT looks. So these are great options. So definitely keep them in mind if you are looking to buy some. Now, speaking of wanting good audio, I was able to test brand new magnetically shielded speakers from the company Kanto. The model is the Aura brand, O-R-A, and they're expensive. They're 350 bucks, but I was very impressed. And uh, I went into pretty good detail in the video, but here's the, the basics. There are smaller speakers that sound like much larger speakers. And while that's subjective, I can't imagine anybody would disagree with that statement. I think a lot of people in the comments saw them next to the BVM and thought, oh, those are too small. I want some big, full speakers. And that's definitely not the case with these. They don't sound small and tinny. They sound much bigger than they are. They are very bass heavy. I actually messaged the company uh, before the video came out and asked about that and they never got back to me. So I don't know. I don't think the bass could be changed at all. I thought my with my own just my own personal opinion, when I was playing video games with these, I thought it was great with music. Sometimes it was a little too bassy. Sometimes, especially in the 90s rap I listened to, I thought it was perfect, but that's subjective and completely up to you. But they definitely don't sound small. And of course, they're not cheap, but the problem is I want to I source for brand new magnetically shielded speakers that you could rely on. And as I showed right in the opening of this video, so many speakers that used to be magnetically shielded are no longer, because if you don't use CRTs, there's no need. But the problem is so many of these companies have not updated any of their documentation and haven't changed the model number. So I ran into this where I bought a couple of different pairs of speakers that still to this day on their website list as magnetically shielded and they are not. Um, so that's, you know, if anybody knows of any cheaper ones that are brand new that I could just provide an easy Amazon link or something for, I'd gladly review those too. But the whole purpose of this was for people that just want good audio near their CRTs that want to click and go. You could absolutely go to thrift stores and try to hunt down older speakers. You could try to do all the same tests that I do. A lot of people were annoyed that I didn't open up these speakers. Zero reason to. You just need to hold them next to the CRT like I did. Uh, I show that in this and the previous video I did. Uh, cracking open brand new speakers that are sealed is not going to do anything other than potentially ruin brand new speakers. So if you want to, by all means, go ahead. I did mention a couple of alternatives. And in fact, somebody that used to work for Bose was very nice and very patient enough to create uh, a chart of which of their speakers are magnetically shielded, which I pinned. I should probably update this post before this podcast goes live. But uh, so if you were looking for cheaper solutions, that's definitely one way to go about it. Now, I really like my Bose desktop speakers. I always thought that they sounded great. They don't sound as good as this, but if you get a cheap pair for 50 bucks, that's $300 cheaper. So I mean, that's apples and oranges right there. So if you were looking for something that was shielded, check out the pinned post. I'll try to update this as well. However, 
always, always, always run those tests that I showed. It's just as simple as firing up a static screen and moving the speaker all around it to make sure that there's no distortion. And my completely unscientific method, this is guessing, this might be total crap, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're using an unshielded speaker, the method that I've chosen for that is to do the same test but move the speakers away slowly. And I actually have a camera on a tripod in manual mode so it doesn't autocorrect so that I could see after the fact, you know, I could move the speakers away and once I stop seeing interference, double the distance from the CRT. So if it has to be one, fo one foot away, two or three feet away, if, if possible. Um, just don't put it right up at that edge because even though you might not see any color uh, discoloration on that, there could absolutely still be some magnetic field interference that could do some long-term damage or just mess with geometry and stuff. But if anybody knows a better method, please, I am all ears. I never mind being wrong. I just need some, some proof. So is there a more scientific method than double the distance from when you stop seeing interference? Or I'm, I'm all ears. I'd love to know the answer to that one. But either way, please check out this video, especially if you're a BVM owner. If you have an old school CRT with just a composite input and the built-in speaker, you might benefit from just replacing that speaker or speakers with a brand new one. You could try to find magnetically shielded ones that would fit, but you don't have to spend this kind of money and you could just enjoy it as is. But it is my strong opinion that if you've just dropped a couple of thousand dollars on a BVM, don't cheap out. Spend your money on some decent speakers or some Ascend Acoustics and an NAD amp. Oh, that is definitely my favorite. Way different price point, but still. So, yeah, just uh, hopefully you enjoyed it, and hopefully this was a kind of a good catch-up summary of the whole thing. Here's a fun one for fans of Super Mario Advance 4, which is Super Mario Brothers 3, but on the Game Boy Advance. In Japan, the e-reader accessory for it had some special options that allowed you to unlock features like the cape from Super Mario World or the ability to pull up the, uh, the plants like in Super Mario 2, and those were only able to be unlocked with the e-reader. And Selena had gone and figured out a way to get all of that unlocked and uploaded the save game file to archive.org. Now, it's a save game file, so that is legal. There is no intellectual property there. And if Nintendo really wanted to argue about save game files, I, I think they would just look like morons. So I'm not, I have no problem linking to this. But uh, Selena's post also went into details about some of the other stuff that was unlocked if you were able to with e-reader levels. And in fact, when Nintendo re-released this for the uh, Wii U, they included a lot of that as part of the content. So I actually was able to download the original ROM and then download a patch that patches it with all the Wii U content and then use this save file. So I basically have the complete version with everything unlocked. Uh, I put a very short example up on uh, social media the other day, and I, I just thought, it, I just wanted to show what it was like. The picture that uh, Selena used here is absolutely perfect. It shows the cape and the, the plant above you. I thought that was the, the best example of this. But if you want to see a little bit of it in action, there's just like a, a one minute video on there. But overall, I just thought this was neat because I had completely forgotten that the e-reader version unlocks all of this stuff. Uh, or the uh, the e-reader accessories could unlock all of it. And I also totally forgot that the Wii U version had all those extra things in it. So the combination of the two gets you everything that you would need. Please check out Selena's post for more info and uh, go give it a try up uh, on a mister like I did. Next up, John Lineman of Digital Foundry recently posted a full deep dive tech analysis of Sonic Superstars across 
all the different platforms and PC. And it was absolutely awesome as always. But there was a few things that really stuck out about it that made me want to write the post. Because, um, you know, while I'm sure everybody here has already subscribed to DF and they don't need my promotion, there were things that maybe some of us would be really interested in. And John pointed out two very important things. First of all, um, the PC version is the only one that could run at 120 frames per second. Now, the Switch version obviously wasn't going to, but kind of surprising that either the PS5 or Xbox Series X or S won't do that. Uh, so if you wanted to experience what Sonic would be like in 120 FPS, you're going to use the PC version. However, there's one other huge advantage of the PC version you could hack it with music packs. Now, while this is a little bit of a spoiler, John really did a great job with the ex uh, sound examples. So I really hope it's not a spoiler and more of a reason for you all to go check out the video. But he pointed out a couple of audio tracks that kind of felt either unfinished or maybe reused from Sonic 4 that they didn't get to use on the rest of that. But it's something that I don't know if I would have, it would have bothered me if John didn't point it out. Yeah, you know, it probably would have been something like, oh, I don't really like this music, but I like the others. However, after hearing what it sounded like, after downloading and applying the music packs, it was a world of difference. So maybe someday I'll be able to give it a try on my PC. I'm a, I'm a grumpy PC gamer. I use my PC all day long for work. So I, I have a hard time sitting down in front of it playing a game, but I think I'll, I'll try to figure out a way to do it. And because I just would love to see it in 120 FPS and hear it with the better music and kind of check it out as is. If you did want to buy a console version, it, I think the physical editions are still on sale and the sales might've all ended from last weekend or anything, but I linked just in case there should be physical editions for all the consoles on there if you'd like. So, uh, you know, even if you're not the biggest fan of Sonic, check out John's video. I thought it was awesome and well done. And I really loved hearing the different audio examples in there. I just purchased and lab tested a Brawler 64 NSO edition. So that's the Retro Fighters controller that is Bluetooth and USB based that will work with the Switch and also the Nintendo Switch Online for Nintendo 64 games, or I think pretty much any game on there. And when I talked about it, as well as the limited edition gold version that's still available, I have links to them if you want to pre-order that as well. Uh, when I had talked about it, I had talked about how I was frustrated that I couldn't get lag test results, and there is so much good news to talk about. So first of all, the USB connection uh, through Mr. averaged 3.3 milliseconds of latency, while the Bluetooth connection, also through Mr., averaged 8.5 milliseconds, both in X input mode. So that's excellent. About half a frame wireless is equal or better than most other solutions out there. And 3.3 milliseconds is more than respectable. And I think even pro players would be fine. Unless you get your occasional Smash player that claims that one millisecond of latency is why they lost their game and not just that somebody else was a better player than them. But I'll leave that up to them to argue with. All the players that I've worked with for 10 years uh, say that three milliseconds of latency can be very realistically counted as zero. It's not going to mess with your game. So I thought that was great news, but on top of that, Retro Fighters had purchased a full Mr. Kit, and of course I gave them my favorite, that absolutely amazing Retro Castle case, but they had purchased a full kit from me with the lag tester. 
and they plan on going back and testing their controllers, at the very least all their new ones, but hopefully all of their previous as well to give us some serious numbers. So I want to just give a very quick overview of what to expect with that, as well as what I did here. If this stuff bores you, please skip to the next section, but I hope this stuff interests you, and I'm going to try to get through it kind of quickly. So as I've shown in two previous live streams that I did with Lewis from Zez Retro, as well as Lewis's videos that I always link to, uh, the way this works is you take a controller and you sync it to your mister, whether it's USB or uh, Bluetooth, whatever, or both. Sync them, map the controllers, uh, map all the buttons, then go into this custom core written by Lemonichi that allows you to, it's basically a modified NES core, but it's a lag testing core. So go in there, map all your buttons there as well, reboot, verify that everything's done, then take apart the controller and solder a wire to signal on any one of the buttons as well as ground. Then you pull those over to this kit, which you could build yourself. I'm going to hopefully talk to some friends and maybe get a run of 50 or 100 built. I would love to see people start to use these for their reviews. I would take a loss on this if I knew it was going to people who were going to use them for their reviews and their YouTube channels. So you, you get this kit, which is basically an Arduino board with some stuff broken out of it. Uh, you connect the power and ground to the Arduino board, uh, the signal and ground from the controller, and then the Arduino goes to your PC where you run PuTTY in order to get these results. Then the other part of the board, the custom part, goes to the snack port, just the USB zero latency port on your mister. Then you fire the core back up, and that's it. It automatically, since you've already mapped your buttons, will press that button and read it through the core, and it'll take a realistic latency measurement because it's going through either the Bluetooth or USB input. But the reader, the actual thing that's reading the signal, is going through the 0.0 millisecond latency snack input. So you get a down to the 0.001 millisecond accurate reading of controllers. The way that I do it, and I'm not a controller manufacturer, so I do think retro fighters should do it a little different, but I run it a thousand times, which only takes about a minute, by the way, because it just presses the button a thousand times and spits out a file. But I run it a thousand times three different times. And in the case of the Bluetooth, I actually did it with three different USB Bluetooth adapters. Uh, one USB or Bluetooth 4.3 and the other two were different revisions, Bluetooth 5.0. One had a gigantically long antenna. The other one was a little stubby one. Uh, and then you use LibreOffice, any kind of spreadsheet-like program to load up that file that was created in PuTTY and then you sort from low to high, and that way you could kind of first see if there's any discrepancies. There was a couple of times where maybe I plugged in the lag testing device after I'd launched the core, so it spit out some erroneous numbers that were far off. Like, you'll often see this as 0, 0.0 milliseconds, which is kind of impossible in this scenario, or read error, or the opposite. You'll scroll to the highest, and the highest number might be eight milliseconds, but then you'll have a 25 millisecond afterwards. If that's the case, rerun the test or just delete the erroneous ones. They're never real. That's the test. That's not the actual latency. Um, but, you know, if there's multiple on each, keep rerunning it. Maybe there is a weird thing going on. But for the most part, it's just a, a you know, just a, a blip, nothing to worry about. 
And that way you know the lowest latency and the highest latency. And for these, the USB-C, the lowest reading was 0.34 milliseconds, and the highest was 5.84. And in one of those tests, I got like a 17 millisecond reading and a, a zero, no read. So uh, I reran it two other times, and I got the exact same results. So that was just erroneous um, the same results without the two high and low. Uh, so that, you know, that's excellent numbers right there. And then the Bluetooth one, the lowest reading I got was 2.81 milliseconds and the highest reading was 17.78, which averaged about 8.5 milliseconds. And that's absolutely excellent. And fun to note that it didn't really change between the Bluetooth adapters whatsoever. If I were a controller company, I would do the same thing, but I'd probably let it run for 10,000 because it's only going to take five, 10 minutes to do. So I think that'd be a, a totally acceptable way to go about doing it. Um, but either way, I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty confident in my lag test results here. And especially in, especially just by saying these are actually pretty low latency controllers, all things considered. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, the only other things to note, is I am in the burbs now. I'm not in New York City in the middle of Manhattan like I used to be, and the controller was about a foot away from the mister. I think this is fair because I think you need to test the latency of the controller, not the latency of your environment and your total setup. And I'm sure there are some people that might argue like, oh, well, you know, that's not realistic. What if I'm in a city? It's my opinion, and please correct me if you think I'm wrong, but that's your scenario. That's not this controller. And if I were a company like this, I might put it in an EMI chamber to test. Uh, it's really expensive. You could build like a little Faraday cage or something just to, just to make sure that you're not getting outside results that are skewed. And I would be willing to bet that these results would be higher if I was back in my Manhattan apartment or if I took the controller all the way to the other side of the room. But that's not controller latency. That's environment latency. So that's only something you'd have to worry about with wireless. USB, you can give a 100-foot cable, and as long as the power reaches, it's going to be the same reading. So please let me know if you have any... Um, if you look at that any different way, maybe I missed something. I'm always open to interpretation for stuff like this, but these are all very strong opinions based on years of testing stuff like this. Uh, and I, I just think it's fair that these companies provide you what the controller latency is, and then you kind of have to go from there. Maybe they could even word it as, you know, average or best case scenario type of thing. I wouldn't, if I were them, I wouldn't say, you know, 2.81 milliseconds of latency. I would say the average. I think that's fair, but I also think in a controlled environment is also the fair way to do it. Um, the only other thing to note is I really liked the way the controller felt. Uh, I ended up using it with a ton of shooters, like shmups games, uh, not just the N64 core, because I thought it was pretty comfortable to hold. And for those games, I just used the triggers for you know rapid fire and regular shot and the A and B button for bomb or special move or something. And you can map the analog stick to the D-pad controls. It's not going to magically make them analog, but it will work. Obviously, I thought it was great for the N64 core. I really thought it was more comfortable than the original. And the only issue I had went away. I had to repair it every time I power cycled everything. And then after writing the post, I went back to use this controller to test uh, Super Mario Advance for the Mario 3 one I just talked about. Powered up the mister, powered, or pressed a button on the controller, and it just worked perfect. So I don't know what I did wrong, but I just figured I would put that out there. Uh, if it's something where you have to enter X input mode and sync every time, as long as you have a keyboard connected to your mister, which I always keep one of these 
wireless ones connected at all times. I don't think that's a problem. It takes about 10 seconds, but it's up to you. I just wanted to full disclosure as always. So hopefully I didn't ramble too long. I just really wanted to give everybody an idea of what goes into testing these controllers shorter than a very long live stream with Lewis that you could always watch if you wanted to, but also why I strongly think that a controlled environment posting average readings of 10,000 total readings, I think it's completely fair. Uh, and I think retro fighters could absolutely set the precedent for all controller manufacturers from now on. Because imagine, I mean, I, I got to be blunt as always, imagine how stupid all the other controller manufacturers are going to look when retro fighter starts bragging about not only their low latency, but that they're using community built methods to test methods that you yourself could very easily spend a couple of bucks if you already own a mister to set this up and verify yourself so it's not nothing they could ever cheat i think if they start talking about this other controller manufacturers have to jump on board because why would you pick a company that doesn't want to talk about their lag versus one that brags about here's how we test it this is for you by you we're all doing this together so other companies, you better step up your game because Retro Fighters looks like uh, looks like they are. And feel free to get in touch with me. You know, I'm always here to help. Uh, you know, I'll put you in touch with whoever you need or whatever you need to get this stuff done. I'll do it on my own dime. I just want to make sure that we all get our controllers and that we know what we're buying before we buy it. This next post is about adding a fan to your OSSC Pro, but you probably don't need it. I want to just start this by saying... If you bought an OSSC Pro and you're using it on a shelf or next to your game consoles or next to your TV, you almost surely, even in a warm climate, will not need to add a fan. However, if you're mounting it up against a wall behind a bunch of stuff or in some kind of server rack style thing, adding some extra airflow might be beneficial and it's very easy, so I figured I would write a quick post on it. First of all, the uh, injection molded case that the OSSC Pro comes in already has a vent hole with fan holes around it. So just as is, it acts like pretty good ventilation right over the chip. However, you could purchase a very quiet Noctua fan that will bolt directly into that spot and plug into the fan header right on the board. So no soldering, no messing around. You just plug it in, screw it in. All you need is a screwdriver. That's it. One Phillips head screwdriver, and that's all the installation. And um, I think that if you are in a rack mount scenario, you might want to worry about this. And that's it. It's um, The fan should only spin up higher when the chip gets hotter. And I prefer orientation in situations like this, where the fan is blowing air, fresh air from the outside onto the processor. I've gotten in many arguments with people about this over the years, except I've spent an insane amount of hours of my life in thermal chambers, designing thermal chambers, and making fanless sealed, 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 sealed medical grade computers. I have so much actual technical data behind my recommendation. So if you disagree, please post some data because otherwise uh, I'm sticking with my recommendation here. I think that bringing fresh air from the outside directly over the heat sink, and then it naturally just dissipates out through the, the holes that are already there, the buttons, the, the other ports and everything. That's always been the most efficient way in a scenario like this. If you're worried, just grab a thermal probe, jam it in between the heat sink, uh, the heat sink vents, put some capped on tape, try it in both while doing the same thing and, and see whatever works better for you. So that's just one tip. And the other one is I actually didn't have the 5-volt version of this fan laying around. I happened to have a brand new 12-volt version. I plugged it in and it worked. 
Yes, I know if you run a 5-volt fan at 12-volt, it's probably not going to last as long. However, it's also not going to spin as fast, so that kind of compensates. Um, but I did find that it was perfectly silent because it wasn't spinning super fast, and it was keeping the air moving. So I talked to Marcus about this, and of course his suggestion was you should buy the right fan. But if you're like me and you have a brand new sealed Noctua fan that just happens to be 12 volts, but it's the same size, you could go in to the fan PWM settings and just set it to 100%. It's still not going to spin very fast. It's still going to be very, very quiet, but just save the profile. And then that way you could just kind of have a little bit of peace of mind that you could use something you have laying on your shelf and kind of go from there. If you do know that you're going to have a poorly ventilated hot area, buy the 5-volt fan, even if you already have a 12-volt laying around. But if not, or if you just like extra airflow in your components, 12-volt should be totally fine. So once again, you probably, in almost all scenarios, do not need a fan in your OSSC Pro, just like you're not going to need it in almost all scenarios with the RetroTINK 4K. But there are scenarios that you might want it. Uh, and Greg is working on a solution for the Tink 4K, which I'll highlight as soon as it's available to purchase. And this is just a, a basic Noctua fan here. So wanted to share that with you, even though most people won't need it. My fellow nerds who do need it might appreciate it. Stika just uploaded a comprehensive deep dive video about the first four Wizardry games, which was essentially the first JRPG. That was released the same year as Ultima and really kind of co-created the genre as well as spilled into things like anime and really changed the way a lot of these things are or maybe even paved the way for a lot of the RPG games that we see today. So if you're into JRPGs or if you're just into video game history, I think this is definitely something you might be interested in. But if you're a fan of the Wizardry series, it's kind of a must-watch deep dive Stika video. And if you're a fan of Stika's content, you've probably already watched this anyway, and I'm just wasting your time telling you what you already know. But um, I'm always happy to highlight Stika's stuff here. And just a very polite note, no one that I know of has complained, but when you see writers promoting their own stuff on Retro RGB, it's because I asked them to. Nobody has ever, ever abused it. Most people will just kind of talk with me about it anyway, just because we all love nerding out about this stuff anyway. I just wanted to put that out there. No one's complained yet, but I do know that some of the writers were kind of feeling like, hey, is it okay to write up my own stuff? And I always say, as long as you feel like it's something that I would have been excited to talk about anyway, then by all means, have at it. And almost every one of Stika's videos is, is like that. So uh, I'm, I'm happy to have him and all of the other contributors post their own stuff on here. It really makes me happy to see it. Also, it makes it easier because sometimes I will really enjoy somebody's video and I, it'll sink in and I'll, I'll be thinking about it. But because they're the expert, I don't know how to explain it in the way that they do. So when they write their own post, it's very easy for me to read the post and go, oh yeah, that is the best way to describe that video I just watched. So it uh, kind of benefits everybody. So I just wanted to put that out there in a nice way and just say, you know, thank you to all the contributors who take the time to do that. I would love to promote as much stuff as possible. It just has to feel like it fits for retro RGB and we got to have time to do it. And time is the thing I have the least of these days. So that's another reason why I love when contributors help out like that. I was incredibly excited when I saw this next video pop up on Tito from Macho Nacho's channel. This is a video about how to build a Sega Neptune. 
Now, for those of you who might not know, the Neptune was a console that was essentially a Genesis and 32X combined that was supposed to be released after the 32X, but before the Saturn to kind of bridge the gap between those two eras. And then Sega just decided, you know what, this is cutting it too close to the Saturn's launch. Let's, uh, let's just shelf this thing and forget about it. But the design of the console was always really neat. And I actually think they kind of borrowed from it for the smaller Genesis 3 that was eventually released, or maybe Majesco borrowed from it when they made that. But I always wanted one. I always thought it was so cool. And there's two components to this. The first is developers Divisix. I'm so sorry. I'm probably killing that. As well as PC Assembly 99 have created a 3D print model that you could have made right through PCBWay. Um, the, everything that you need is right there. So you're able to have one printed and you have a case that essentially would fit a Genesis 2 motherboard. And if you wanted to, you could just throw a Genesis 2 in there and have a Neptune-looking Genesis 2. However, Tito also shows methods of combining a Genesis 2 board and a 32X to actually make a functional Neptune. And it is really, really cool to see. Um, I'm wondering uh, the reliability of it, not because of the mod itself, but because the 32X console itself that glorious mushroom turd has never been reliable so i'm wondering if soldering all the pieces together adding new ribbon cables and putting it together like tito did will actually be a more reliable experience than connecting it the way you normally would i guess only time will tell something like that but the video is awesome please watch the video if you want to make one of these definitely uh, check out the links so that you could make your own maybe we can get some funding together to have an injection molded version made that would be incredible i would help in any way with that However, after seeing this, my nerd gear started spinning, and I just also started thinking about that beautiful Genesis 2 transparent case that Retro Gamer Store was trying to make, and I don't know, I think they may have just gotten enough orders for, but why not make a Mr. Board that is the shape of a Genesis 2 board so that you could drop it right into this as well as an, uh, the Retro Gamer Store case? Now, it would require probably some cutting for the ports and back, but uh, isn't that the exact purpose of having aftermarket stuff? So you could do what you want with it without worrying about hacking up some very cool piece of history. And in the case of the Neptune shell, uh, Divizic said they would consider making a version that uh, with a different IO port so that we could have a Mr. Case in there. So I'm talking to a developer about it now. It's going to be tricky because of the height. Um, you know, you'd have to strip down some options. Not everything would be available, breaked out like you're uh, broken out, breaked out. I'm sharp today, aren't I, everybody? Not everything could be broken out like a standard Mr. Case, but it is my very strong opinion that somebody who would want this would sacrifice extra ports or just have stuff in back to have the look of this. Also, uh, the whole cartridge thing might be easy because you could either just leave the cartridge slot open and leave a Genesis or 32X game in there just for fun, or you could have the top piece uh, that was made, the dust cover, and just kind of glue it in place to make it look like it has its flaps in there, but it's just a solid top. It's also my opinion that power should be power and reset should be OSD, and then in the two front ports instead of two Genesis controller ports have two USB ports so you could plug your controllers right in. But also love to see USB ports on the inside so you could plug your Bluetooth and Wi-Fi connection in. And uh, if you're a nerd like me and you always prefer a wired connection, I would make an exception in this case. So uh, especially if the Mr. Team is able to figure out why wireless sometimes doesn't work for no reason. I have a feeling that's a Linux thing, but don't tell the Linux people or they'll all get mad at me through the command line. 
But either way, even if none of that stuff happens, the video is amazing. The fact that people were able to reverse engineer from pictures and make their own Neptune case is incredible. And I really hope I'm able to purchase one of these and turn it into my mister at some point, just because I think it's such a cool and amazing looking console. And what a weird piece of history that could have been, but never was. Now it's time for this week's Mr. Updates, Care of Lou from Lou's Retro Source. As usual, I'm just going to skim through these, but if you want any more details, please check out Lou's video for visual examples and a whole bunch more. First up, the Nintendo 64 core now has 50% of the TLB implemented, which means you could play things like Super Mario 64 without any kind of patches, as well as a whole bunch of other games. I used this latest version, where if you subscribe to Robert, you can get that right in the Patreon posts. Uh, I used this version with that Retro Fighters controller, and it was very, very cool to play and see. And if you are a subscriber to Robert and you have this, I strongly recommend messing with some of the video settings. It's going to be different per game and maybe even per parts of each game, but I was able to make Super Mario 64 look stunning, like shockingly good. So, you know, not that it looks bad, but these N64 games were very clearly designed to be used via composite video on a CRT, so you get all that smoothing in there, and I just think the stuff Robert's added has been amazing. So thank you for continuing to, to do the impossible. Next up, Pixel Cherry Ninja conducted an interview with Martin, a.k.a. Wickerwaka. I interviewed Martin a while back, and he's awesome, so I, I haven't had a chance to listen, but I have a feeling this is going to be a good one. And uh, while I, we were trying to keep our interview on the, the normal length side, there was a whole bunch of stuff, including Martin's pretty pretty awesome history that I didn't get a chance to talk to him about. So if Pixel Cherry Ninja didn't get around to it, I'll definitely swing back around and have a good chat with Martin at some point in the future. Uh, a couple things on the Mars FPGA project. They showed har uh, real hardware running real games at the Free Play Florida event in Tampa two weeks ago, week and a half ago, something like that. Uh, so, you know, I, I think people behind the scenes all knew that it was real, but isn't it always nicer just to see it up and running? Just to just as proof, I just I love stuff like this. So, uh, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done, but proof that the hardware is real and that just the cores need work porting over is really good and kind of um, comforting for people that were excited to see where this project could go. I still think it's realistic that on day one, you get all of the best Mr. Cores on it, and maybe one or two cores that can't run on Mr. but can run on this faster FPGA. Uh, but I think this the Mars project is probably going to be one that evolves over time and just gets cooler as time goes by. Uh, also, they announced that Mike Chi is a member of the team and will be bringing some things like their uh, absolutely amazing CRT filters to it and, and some of Mike's other work. So it's very cool to see Mike join the team. And it's it's also very cool to see a lot of people just kind of working together to build this up and, and make it something that's, uh, I don't know, I just have a lot of high hopes for the project. As with any project that's in progress, anyone, they could fail at any moment. And it's no disrespect to Mars. I'm just, I'm a nerd being realistic here, but it's got a whole lot of promise and I'm really looking forward to it. Next up, Anton Gale showed off more work that's being done on the Targ arcade schematics, which is pretty impressive and always, uh, always very cool to see. And Hotego released a new beta core for Konami's Thundercross arcade game, which is a vertically scrolling shooter released in 98. Uh, this is available for both the Mr. and the Analog Pocket. And also, Pramod has posted an update on the Williams Arcade Core. 
CPU optimizations were made with Smash TV and Total Carnage working well. However, there were problems with games that used FMV like Mortal Kombat, which doesn't just use FMV for its title and and stage select screens, but for finishing moves and a whole bunch of different components of the game. So Promode, I'm sorry. First of all, I always pronounce Promode's name wrong. It's no... It's not intended. I apologize. But I did speak to Promode, and uh, he's the, the hope isn't gone yet. He's still going to keep trying his best and see if he can find some workarounds. It's not definitive that it's not going to work on Mr., uh, even with or without dual RAM sticks, but he's going to continue to try. So while I completely understand if the hardware is just not powerful enough, um, I'm crossing my fingers for this because it's my favorite fighting game of all time. But Promode's uh, dedication to hardware preservation is is absolutely top tier so even just for the fact of getting it in the hands of more people to be able to try i think he's going to be putting some effort into this but uh, i'm obviously following the project very closely and uh between lou and myself we'll let you know if uh, if mortal kombat can actually be run on a de10 nano or if you have to wait for something like the mars project or whatever's coming next in the the terrasic world but that's it for this week so as usual thank you so much to lou i could never keep up with all of the stuff without him and uh please don't forget to subscribe to his channel as well next up the shiro crew just did an interview with audie sorley of now limited run games previously digital foundry and a whole bunch of other cool stuff Um, the talk was about the saturn the nec pc 98 japanese visual novels game music composition physical media and the current state of the games industry and some other stuff Um, i know the shiro crew and i know audie and they're all amazing people i haven't had time to listen to this one yet but i absolutely have it queued up because yeah, when you get a bunch of really cool people together, it could, it could never it could never suck at the very least. So without listening to it, I have a feeling this one's going to be a good one, and I'm really looking forward to listening. So all awesome people, please check out links to everything. Uh, it's on the podcast services or as a video as well. So definitely check it out. TR Fight Stick has just opened and successfully funded an Indiegogo campaign for a brand new arcade-style fight stick they're calling the Octopus Arcade Fight Stick. The price is about $380 for one and $500 for two, and it's due to ship to customers about June of 2024, so six, seven months from now. It looks very cool. There's a bunch of great features to talk about, but there's one that I think truly stands out from the rest, a built-in VMU for the Dreamcast. So anybody who's ever tried to play fighting games on the Dreamcast knows you basically have two choices, three choices. Use your own custom stick with an adapter and don't get vmu access you could try to do a controller swap but you're most likely going to blow out your controller board so it's strongly recommended you do not do that or you buy the official dreamcast arcade stick which is very good quality i've never really heard anybody complain about that but what if you don't have the space or want to buy something else you already have your controller that you already like it could be a pain so having a high quality fight stick with a vmu built in if you're a dreamcast fan is pretty awesome but compatibility is also through an rg45 connection so anybody that's seen the older mc cthulhu Cthulhu boards um it's basically a network connection on one end and controller on the other it is not 
over the network. They're just utilizing RG45 cable, but they'll have those to connect to a Dreamcast, to USB, which should also be compatible with the Switch, Mr., etc. Neo Geo, as well as most super guns. Uh, I'm assuming they've done the full six button pinout on that as well. And they're going to also look for Saturn as well. So they might add some more as the campaign goes by. Um, they were already funded, but they're looking for some stretch goals. So that would be pretty cool. But one high quality build fight stick that could work with all of those would be nice. It's going to ship with those cables. Um, and it's also going to ship in two different colors, white or black, but with different uh, top panels on it, including one where you could customize it yourself if you would like. All the buttons and stick are going to be Sanwa components, so quality there, certainly not using any uh, any lower quality stuff. The only question is, they're using a customized board uh, that kind of looks like an MC board, uh, but it's something that they've built. And while it's gone out to testers, I don't think anybody's lag tested it yet. Now, there is enough information out there, especially with open source projects, that respectfully, there's no excuse for this to be more than a millisecond, give or take, on average. Uh, so hopefully the team is looking into that and it's going to be low latency. I'll definitely follow up once lag test results have been posted. Um, but hopefully this is something that you'll be able to uh, to rely on because the stick looks awesome. The options are very cool. The price is about what you would expect for something that could do all of this. So it's not cheap, but it's definitely not overpriced. And it'll have some other features like... Um, uh, auto fire and all of that extra stuff. So if you're into fight sticks, it's definitely something that's worth your time to, at the very least, go through the Indiegogo campaign and see if this is for you. My guess is this is really for people who want to play Dreamcast and the rest of those things. Because you could build your own or look for slightly different solutions that are less expensive if Dreamcast didn't matter, or if you didn't need built-in auto fire and all of that stuff. But I do think this absolutely has a place, and I think that it's worth the money for what you get for it. So I'm excited to see it. Um, there's some promo videos up. There's a bunch of pictures. Definitely just check out the Indiegogo campaign, even if you're on the fence, because what, what are you going to spend? Two minutes looking at the, the campaign and get some more info on it, because it just looks very promising and it looks kind of fun. The only thing I would have liked to have seen, which maybe they could consider in future versions, is different button layouts as well. Now, since they have the different uh, faceplates for it, you could make your own, but I would always love to see something like I built myself where a six button layout with a spinner next to it, or maybe even a six button or four button layout with a trackball next to it. Because don't forget, as more games are coming to Mr. and all the vast library of games on MAME, it would be nice to have a stick with all of these options built in. Uh, but maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm one of the few people that actually cares about that extra stuff. So who knows? Maybe they'll offer stretch options for different faceplates with different configurations like that as well. But like I said before, at the very least, you could always build your own. So definitely check out the campaign if you're interested. And I'm very psyched to see where this goes. Pre-orders are now open for a physical edition of a brand new 3DO game called BioFury. The game is also available as a free download, but this will be made available to purchase as a physical copy for people who choose so. And just a quick background on all of it. First of all, the game BioFury was designed by Retro Love Letter, and it's a first-person shooter in the style of Wolfenstein 3D, but with kind of a Resident Evil twist to it. 
World of Games is the publisher that's going to be making it, and they're a company that focuses on bringing new homebrew games for older consoles to physical releases. You have two versions to choose from. The $30 version is a disc with just a pressed disc in a jewel case and a manual, so a complete copy. But a $50 limited edition version will be available in an original 3DO long box case with a dual-sided poster, a keychain, and a 3DO tribute ad. So stuff like this, I absolutely love everything about it. First and foremost, if you have the ability to run homebrew, especially if you have an awesome ODE like Fixels, you could just download the game and start playing. But if you do that and you decide that you really like this game and this is something that you would like to really contribute extra to the developer too, now you could buy a physical version of it. And I like those things also because what if you have an ODE from Fixel because your CD-ROM drive died, but you still love collecting awesome physical media and you still want to support the developer, you still have that copy that you could download for free and play on your ODE, but also buy the physical edition, which I, I definitely do all the time and I think many others as well. So it uh, looks like a very cool game. And uh, once again, I just, I love the setup. You can play the game for free, but if you want to give back and get a very cool thing for yourself, there's two different editions to purchase from. Pre-orders are open right now and it should ship by the end of January. Well, that's it for this time. As always, thank you so much to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially thank you to everybody who supports in any way, whether it's just clicking on affiliate links or especially thank you to people who support monthly through those services. It truly is you who's keeping all of this going. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week. This week's roundup is brought to you by Neo Paradigm Entertainment, connecting Southeast Asian influencers with opportunities in the West.